This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, this set is cursed. Strange events behind the scenes at horror films. So it is the season to be spooky. Um, We are continuing our uh, spooky seasonal specials. And this week, um, our month slash autumn long extravaganza is going to include an examination of something perhaps a little bit more real, question mark. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about the appeal and purpose of horror films before, so you can absolutely check out our back catalogue for previous Spookathon episodes if you're more looking for something about writing horror or dissecting horror tropes. This episode, um, we are going to go behind the scenes of horror films um, in three basic categories. So, number one, based on a true story. Number two, script was majorly changed. And number three, weird shit happened on set. (laughs) And we're going to give you our opinions on it all as we go along. As an added bonus, if you're a fan of our previous Cursed Objects episodes, you'll see a few familiar items here too. With that in mind, let's get into it. Yes. Let's start with The Possession, which was made in 2012. Going in strong immediately with our very spooky themes. Now, now this creepy tale hits at least two of our categories. It is based on real life events and weird stuff happened during the filming. Yeah, the story follows Emily, a young girl whose parents are recently divorced. She buys an antique box at a yard sale, always a mistake, and when she finds the secret lock, opens the box and releases an evil spirit that possesses her. Now, if part of that sounds familiar, it's because the story is based around the sale of the cursed Dibbuk box that turned up on eBay. We talked about this box in detail in our Cursed Objects episode. Now, it is a real box. It definitely has a history of misfortune and inexplicable occurrences surrounding it, Um, although we are not claiming it actually cursed or it's not actually cursed or houses an evil spirit. We are just stating the truth of it and you can find out more about that on our Cursed Objects episode. Yeah. The box currently resides in the Zach Baggins Haunted Museum in Las Vegas and, you know, there's whether any of it's true or not is is completely up for grabs and we've we've discussed it thoroughly before so we're not going to get into it now but it's interesting it spawned so many films yes (laughs) (laughs) however during the filming of the possession many strange and unsettling things began to occur Yeah, electrical items that have been thoroughly tested malfunctioned which included lights exploding cold strange winds would blow up indoors with no apparent source and the storage facility where the props were being held burned to the ground destroying the divot box used as a prop 
Investigation into the fire could find no sign of arson or any reason why it should have occurred at all. The cast and crew were so freaked out by all of this that they actually refused to replace the Dybbuk box prop for fear that it was cursed. Okay, so what do we think? (laughs) Well, we've talked about the Dybbuk box a lot, as I've said. Um, I do think we have to, and honestly, I've had some very strange experiences, so I'm not absolutely like minimizing other people's strange experiences. However, that being said, I've also been involved with theatre folk and I know that actors as a breed are generally quite superstitious. Yeah, I I, I would agree. I also think that um, there is something to be said for mass hysteria um, and that can happen no matter how logical you are. Um, because we are social creatures and once a suggestion has been placed in our heads uh, we are much more likely to sort of make connections and find cause and effect even if they are not what we would usually deem as logical. Yeah definitely. I think you also have to consider the the power of the creative brain here. You've got professional actors, people who Mm -hmm who lie creatively in a professional capacity, um, who is to say that they didn't make it to a certain extent real, if only to a small group of them all working together on that same creative thought focus? Yeah, absolutely. It is also possible that it was cursed. <laughs> yes, they randomly had a prop that was genuinely cursed. So, so there you go. Um, I do think there is. <laughs> yeah. some... I I also think there's, you know, there's something to the idea that, um, uh, you know, kind of almost the power of belief, and if you then put a creative intelligence behind that, you can kind of not necessarily you can kind of manifest things the the whole idea of manifesting is very in vogue at the moment you know manifest your success manifest your wealth etc but the thing is if you really do focus everything on attaining a certain goal chances are you will actually achieve that goal at some point so if you're acting and you're you're trying to manifest this sense of terror and fear and this awful spirit in a box i'm not saying you'll manifest a spirit in a box i'm just saying that you will manifest circumstances around it that make their make it appear that that a prop is actually cursed yeah the rea- the fact is that when you are sort of acting at, at sort of that level there's got to be you have got to on a very small and temporary level believe what is happening or be able to believe it's possible yeah Absolutely. Because otherwise you cannot give that performance. Yeah. Yeah, the the art of lying effectively is to kind of believe the lie yourself. Okay, let's Mm. move on to The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which was made in 2005. Okay. Full disclosure, neither of us have seen this one. Um, And... I know that I personally won't watch it because the real life events that they are based on are kind of sickening. Yeah, I'm the same. I just don't don't really want to support anything to do with with that even though, you know, I do understand that a lot of horror is about what humans will do to each other. Um basically the story follows 
an ambitious young lawyer who takes the case of a Catholic diocesan exorcist accused of negligent homicide after the exorcism and death of 19-year-old Emily Rose. The events are based on real life. In 1975, a young German woman called Annalise Michel underwent 67 exorcisms in the year leading up to her death. Now, at 16, she suffered a seizure and was diagnosed with psychosis caused by temporal lobe epilepsy. She was later diagnosed with depression as well. Honestly, this is where it hits quite close to home for me because as someone who suffers from temporal lobe epilepsy, I can honestly say that, yes, it's, it's not as well understood as it should be it can manifest symptoms that look like schizophrenia but absolutely are not and will not be treated by psychiatric treatment of course it won't work it's it's a different issue in your brain um and it can seem like you're going a bit nuts to to other people to people looking in from the outside they genuinely don't understand that reality is has gone a bit slippery for you Mm mm-hmm yeah um, now, uh, Annalise Michel, um, after about five years of psychiatric treatment, which failed to help because of the reasons which obviously Jules has just outlined, um, her parents became convinced that she was possessed by a demon. And so they brought in yeah. an exorcist. Um, you know, without going some details, but a lot of the treatment involved her being tied or restrained to a bed. Um, with the window left full open in winter, with no heating, with no blankets. So the the whole idea was to make the human body so uncomfortable the demon would want to leave it. Um, She was basically tortured and she died of malnutrition and dehydration. And, you know, her parents and this priest, here's the, the very sad thing, they were so convinced they were right that they were acting in this way because they truly believed they could bring the Emily of pre-16 back. But the thing with temporal lobe epilepsy is it can kick into a new level when you hit puberty or when you hit your 20s, when things, certain hormonal surges kick in and affect your brain. It's not very surprising. It would also affect this issue as well. It can go largely undiagnosed in childhood and, and your teen years. And I have to say, it's comorbid with things like depression. Um, it's comorbid with mm-hmm. chronic pain. And it's comorbid with some of the stuff she was talking about, hearing voices. One of the most common manifestations of temporal lobe epilepsy is as you are drifting off to sleep, is hearing someone shout your name in your ear. And it is very frightening when it happens to you. And if you then go on to say to someone, I'm hearing voices, well, that's never usually a good sign. (laughs) So it's understand that people would be concerned. But to go to the nth degree of, yes, it's demonic possession and then literally torture your daughter to death is, yeah. And I I do think it's that kind of small-mindedness that is encouraged by certain organised religions that's the problem. Absolutely. Now... On the set of the movie, strange things began to occur. So one of them was that the lead, uh, Jennifer Carpenter, would be regularly woken in her, her t- in her hotel room during the night by the radio mysteriously switching on. Um, and every time, the song it was playing was Pearl Jam's Alive. 
Yeah, many other cast members reported the same occurrences, and again, it, every time it was Pearl Jam's Alive. Um, it got so bad that they demanded the radios be removed from their rooms. Quite understandably. <laughs> yeah. So, what are our thoughts on now, this? <laughs> my personal thoughts are... Yeah. <laughs> um, I I sort of feel like there are, you know, um, explanations for that, which are quite reasonable. Uh, the most obvious being that it was a prank. Yeah, or that it was deliberate by um, some member of the crew who were deliberately trying to create this sense of fear in the actors so that they would act, bring this into the acting, which is mm -hmm. horrible, but possible. Yeah, absolutely. On the other hand, have you ever been somewhere and the radio or... The, <laughs> have you ever been somewhere and the, the radio or television has suddenly just blinked on? Because it is creepy when that happens. Yeah, it is terrifying. And I, I think in particular, um, <laughs> the ring and stuff like that have, have really made the notion of a TV just being on static <laughs> really scary. <laughs> yeah, uh, obviously it usually comes down to some sort of electrical thing or, you know, a lot of... A lot of entertainment, I mean now at least, certainly not in, not in 2005, but now, a lot of televisions, um, and we don't really use stereos anymore, but that sort of thing, is it, it's, got a, it's got smart technology attached to it, so if it gets its wires crossed, it, it gets confused, and it will literally turn itself on. Mm. And it, is, it is freaky, but you know, there's a perfectly reasonable explanation, and that is that you know, there is a, a default command that for some reason fired. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's the moment where um, I, I don't personally use it, but I know um, I've been in households where just out of the blue, it's the middle of the night and then um, you sort of Google or, or Alexa or whatever just goes, I didn't quite catch that. Could you repeat it? Could you repeat yourself? Or, okay, adding such and such to the shopping list. Um, and this is particularly the case because uh, my... Um, I've been in in homes where uh, the the like I've been house sitting or something like that, and the owners have got like some kind of Google setup or something along those lines, and it's connected to their phone wherever they are, um, and so they'll be on the other side of the world giving instructions at what is a person perfectly reasonable hour, and some for some reason the their home base one will react to that. <laughs> Yeah. Of course, more it's disturbingly, it can just mean that those microphones and things are on all the time and they're spying on you for advertising yes. purposes. <laughs> so, yeah, that wouldn't have been the case in 2005, though, because that technology just didn't exist in the same way then. No, it didn't. But there have been lots of cases of strange things happening on film sets, which later on were just revealed to be kids playing pranks or as you said members on set um sort of purposefully doing this in order to scare or evoke responses uh from the actors okay nightmare on elm street 1984 that classic yes now this one is a triple threat um, it has basis in fact, unfortunate things happened on set 
And the script was majorly changed. Yeah, the plot follow well, the plot is that a group of teenagers discover they are having the same nightmare. A monstrous man with metal claws stalks them through their dreams trying to kill them. What follows is a battle to stay awake as more and more of their friends are killed in their dreams. Now, the original plot was not that Freddy, the dude with the claw hand, was a child killer. It was that there was a serial child rapist. Echoes of that still exist in the film. When MC Nancy's mother admits that she and the other parents had confronted Freddy a decade before and burned him alive, it pulls into focus why Freddy is back now. Yes, if we take it that Freddy represents buried childhood trauma, especially sexual abuse, it's very common for that to emerge again during adolescence, when the person who has repressed the memories is suddenly pumped full of hormones which tell them they need to experiment with sex, have crushes, start dating, etc. It's perfectly normal for a resurgence of childhood nightmares to come crashing back at that time. It also makes more sense of the parents' role in this film. Um, they could not get a paedophile removed by the law, so they took matters into their own hands, but failed to completely undo the damage. And finally, the nonsensical ending starts to make sense. Uh, in the film as it stands, Nancy defeats Freddy by turning her back on him. If he really was a slasher monster, then that would have little effect other than to get stabbed in the back. But if he mm -hmm. is a manifestation of trauma, the symbolic act of acknowledging it and then deciding it has no power over you because you are going to take control from here on does make a certain sense. Absolutely. Now, as far as unfortunate events go, the blood gushing through the bed scene went horribly wrong when the fake blood hit an electrical light, allowing the current to travel back through the liquid to electrify a prop manager. The rotating room then malfunctioned, spreading the fake blood further to more electrical items, shorting them out and electrifying the liquid further. Several people were injured, but fortunately no one was seriously hurt. Yeah. And was it based on real events? Well, yes. Firstly, the screenwriter was inspired by the suns phenomenon, which is something I used in my book Slice of Death. Suns, sudden unexplained nocturnal death syndrome, affects a very specific group of people, uh, the Hmoob who you know you can find in china vietnam there's now there's now groups of them in france and the uk and canada and various other places um i'm not going to go into loads of detail but basically what happens is the seemingly perfectly healthy particularly male uh young people go to sleep and they just don't wake up and there's no previous history of heart failure or heart issues at all but it seems that their hearts just stop and under uh, Hmoob um, folklore, there is a creature called a Dachau, which, uh, if not appeased or propitiated correctly with the right rituals, will attach itself to groups of these people and it will kill them in their dreams. Yeah. And I have to say, it's still not, they're still not sure what causes sons. It's still happening today. Yeah. 
Secondly, even though the child sexual predator angle was dropped, um, it was based originally on the McMartin trial, which began in 1983 um, and didn't end until uh, 1990. That's okay. I'll just mention the Martin trial. Um, I won't, won't go into detail because we don't need to here, and it's horrific enough. Basically, this was a, a sort of special school for children where the children eventually turned to the adults and pointed out teachers, and it, it was kind of like a chain of uh, child sexual molestation that was going on in this school. Mm. Um, it started being investigated in 1983. Arrests happened in 1984. The trial was long and drawn out, and it finally finished in 1990 with every single accused teacher going free and nobody being held accountable for anything. It was an incredibly traumatic and frustrating thing, and it was something that just was constantly in the background in 1983 in America. Um, so it's not surprising that it... it sort of basically provided a backdrop for something like Nightmare on Elm Street. But I think mm. the idea of a child sexual, pre sexual predator being the monster um, was a bit strong in 1984, for, even for the horror genre. So our thoughts. Um, I've got to say that um, <sighs> Nightmare on Elm Street, um, I think I watched it a long, long time ago. Um, and I have never quite recovered. Do you know a lot of people say that? <laughs> there was a scene in particular where, um, and I think this is the first one, I'm not sure if maybe it was a sequel or something like that, where one of the characters goes to turn on the tap in the bathroom and it's an old style tap and the tap grabs her in that she's got her fingers between sort of the little sort oh. of spokes and the tap grabs her and begins to grow yeah. the claws at, with freddie appearing um and sort of starts cutting her and that scared me so much as a child that even now i get a little bit freaked out whenever i have to turn on bathroom taps that look like that yeah it, it's all the little details i mean i think it does it's kind of it, it's a slasher classic it really did pave the way for a lot of slasher films which you know aren't really my oeuvre so you know they're not they're not things i would naturally gravitate towards um mm. i do however think that in terms it's one of the better examples of the subgenre simply because it was really important to the producer that um, it not just be mindless, you know, spatterpunk, that all the characters have characterization, that people mm. weren't just punished for, you know, being teenagers who had sexual inclinations. Um, that it literally, I, that's why I think as a, a sort of metaphor for buried childhood trauma, it actually works better than it does as an actual film. Mm. Okay, the next one is The Birds, uh, the 1963 classic. Now, the plot follows a young socialite who meets a lawyer in a pet store. They have a history and a sort of an argument. She buys lovebirds as gesture to mend fences. Um, 
a very lukewarm romance um, um, ensues with a far more intense uh, female-female friendship happening in the background. Then the main character is attacked by a gull, giving the love interest a chance to tend to her head wound. More and more birds attack, more and more bird attacks then continue to occur. I mean, the Alfred Hitchcock classic was based on Daphne du Maurier's short story, which is why I think, weirdly, there's a bit of a bisexual angle in there that he didn't intend because he took a lot of stuff from her short story and Daphne du Maurier was bisexual. Um, Yeah. So a lot of her work does incorporate that angle as well. However, um, events within the film were based on true occurrences as well. Yes. So in 1961, the birds in uh, Monterey Bay started acting strangely. They were disorientated and bombarded buildings, killing themselves in their hundreds against walls and windows. Um, In 2011, it was discovered that the birds had ingested a toxin producing algae, which caused seizures seizures and disorientation. Yes. So there's not a big mystery around this one. Um, By all accounts, Hitchcock was an absolute bastard to the female main character to get her to act scared enough, which is Mm -hmm. not something we'll get into. Um, But if we take the... (laughs) If we just look at the story, the... um, the female friendship between the socialite and um, a woman who works, I believe it's a woman who works in the pet store, is is really strong and you kind of just want them to get into a car together at the end of the film and leave this crazy town where flocks of birds attack people. <laughs> it feels like that would make a lot more sense than what actually, actually does happen where it's kind of like, ah oh, yes, they ride off into the sunset together having been ser- seriously clawed and beaked etc <laughs> but i think the film itself is kind of about our sort of nascent fear of nature suddenly becoming uncontrollable yeah absolutely it is very much an environmental horror okay moving on to poltergeist in 1982 yes yes poltergeist uh the plot tells the story of a family whose house was built on a burial ground um, and who are then tormented by its malevolent spirits. Uh, This is exacerbated by their youngest child, Carol Ann, who is a powerful psychic. Yeah. Never Um, a good combination. It's never a good combination at all. Uh, The story was based on the true life events of the Herman family, who claimed their Long Island home was haunted since objects mysteriously moved and were even seen floating through the air. They eventually moved but believed the reason for the paranormal activity was down to the house being near a Native American burial ground. Check out our Southern Gothic episode to find (laughs) out more about that. Now. As far as peculiar happenings on set go, uh, there were a lot of deaths around the film, including the older sister Dana, played by Dominique Dunn, being murdered by her ex-boyfriend a day before the film launched, and 12-year-old Heather O'Rourke dying on an operating table just as she finished wrapping up Poltergeist 3. Uh, The two girls were buried side by side in the same California cemetery. 
Yeah, the producer, Will Sampson, felt that the set was evil and, you know, he had a lot of complaints from the cast and crew about the, the whole feel of the thing, that it felt wrong. So he had it exercised prior to mm. filming the second film. He also died during a routine operation just after the second movie was complete. Again, I feel that this is sort of a potential case of manifestation. Yeah, I mean, um, it is quite coincidental. And, and also just a series of unfortunate events. Yeah, definitely. I mean... I don't know. I think the thing is, when you line those deaths up together, and those weren't the only deaths either, you start to get to the point of um, coincidence saturation, whereby you're like, that can't be coincidence because it's too much coincidence, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and I do think that even if we remove sort of any idea of supernatural kind of elements you can create a sort of a sense of an evil place even without evil actually being physically done um and this manifestation these ideas they can have sort of psychological impacts um for example i i don't know uh the situation uh with Dom uh, dominique dunn um but it is possible that perhaps um elements of sort of the kind of the negativity or things like that within the film from the set uh, might have influenced her to sort of be with a a violent person um or perhaps it didn't um but these things can all have a knock-on effect and there is also something to be said about um, sort of recovery and health and things like that and positivity. And even though, you know, a, the, call it also the placebo effect and things like that, um, even, if we, even if we say there's no supernatural element, you can also understand how kind of just this manifestation created by people building the story could have knock-on effects. Yeah, potentially. Yeah, you, you absolutely could do. I mean, if you focus on a particular aspect of life, you're going to see it more often. It's as simple as that. Um, I do feel that there's kind of a bit of the, the Ouija board thing here. I don't know if you've ever participated in one. No. <laughs> That's a very definite no. <laughs> um, honestly, it... <laughs> I'm not sticking my hand through that door. <laughs> no, and... Uh, Okay, full disclosure, yes, I have a couple of times, but with very um, stringent measures in place, shall we say, and I, I won't go into more detail on that. And what I will say is that it's not something I recommend. Um, if you're going to monkey around with the supernatural, I would say don't start with something like that. I'm not saying it's real, but I'm also not saying it's not, because mm. even if there's nothing there and you are just shouting into the void... Or speaking into the void whatever even if you're engaging with it in a bit of fun even if you're dredging up answers from your own subconscious subconscious consciousness and you are effectively moving the glass or whatever by you know involuntary little muscle spasms you know there's, there's a well-documented 
effect whereby on some level you know where something is or you know what the answer to something is and thereby it translates into these muscle spasms Mm. um, which would lead you to spell out an answer Uh, all of that you know is perfectly scientifically plausible etc the problem is as madeline has pointed out once you open that door it's really bloody hard to close it again and I think people yeah. go into this sort of thing a little bit too lightly, and that channel is too wide. And if you don't know how to open and close that door safely, then you really shouldn't fuck around with it. Because your your subconscious is mm. a place where basically your id lives there as well as your superego, <laughs> put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to The Twilight Zone, uh, 1983. Now, we are not going to go into the plot. It was The Twilight Zone, so you just know that it was weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now, this is an interesting one for me. Uh, Vic Morrow, one of the actors uh, who was doing one of the main lead parts, he took out life insurance policy before filming because he had this strange set of premonitions of something bad happening to him on set and he said this as much to um, fellow actors and other crew members before he started Um, he was later then killed during the helicopter scene when it accidentally crashed um, decapitating him and two Vietnamese child actors the inquest revealed that the children had been hired illegally which led to a lawsuit but that's sort of incidental to this thing as horrible as it is yeah um, now, in addition, uh, way before filming, the concept artist had drawn the scene mistakenly believing it would be a helicopter crash. The artwork and the actual scene of what did happen, unscripted, were a dead match. Okay, thoughts on this one? <laughs> it's just incredibly creepy. <laughs> it is. Um, as far as you know occasional premonitions go i'm willing to believe it's possible because i've had premonitions of my own which have turned out to be eerily accurate and i can't explain i think sometimes we take information from our five senses and we put things together so accurately it gives the sense that we we also have a sixth sense kind of thing um I can even give examples which were pretty fucking creepy if people want them. (laughs) Yeah, I I would kind of be in agreement that I I do think that even if you decide that, you know, you don't want to believe in a supernatural side of things, um, that psychologically people can sort of have these sort of premonitions. Um, I've had similar kind of situations as well. Uh, And I, I... there might be all sorts of other things which kind of can tie into it you know you know premonitions like um becoming true because they have been defined um so there is some interesting potential there as well the whole thing um with the twilight zone obviously is very eerie incredibly sad and brutal yeah yeah absolutely um okay as as far as premonitions go there's one and then there's an even well in fact there's there's loads but there's one very particular one and there's one that's even more creepy than that but i will i will give this one as an example when i was 17 i was hit by a car yes um i was cycling from my 
home to Dorchester along a country road um, and, you know, doing it sensibly. And it was my mother's birthday. (laughs) My mum did not want me to do it. And part of me didn't want to do it, but I'd said I would do it. And I was kind of at a phase where my mum and I weren't particularly getting on very well. So the more she kind of said, you shouldn't do it, the more I was kind of like, I'll be fine, um, as you are as a teenager. And I knew something bad was going to happen. My mother knew something bad was going to happen, but it was kind of like things had to fall out the way they did. Anyway, I was almost, I was sort of halfway there and a car tried to overtake me on this, not especially narrow road. They were just being a bit stupid uh, around, I don't know, without really checking to see what was coming the other way. There was a van coming the other way. So of course they swerved and they swerved back in and they hit the back of my my bike. They went over the bike and I should have been dead. I absolutely should have been dead, except if we wind it back to about a, a second and a half before it actually happened, I obviously couldn't see this car behind me. I didn't know what it was doing but I knew I had to get off that bike. I knew in that second, I absolutely had to get off that bike if I wanted to live. So I threw myself over the handlebars, which when you're cycling is not the easiest thing to do, but I did have, this is this is where it sounds a bit stupid, but I had a background in gymnastics. So I hand sprung over the handlebars. I literally flipped myself up and over. As I was reaching the top of that arc, Wow. to flip myself over the handlebars the car hit the back of the bike and that added impetus threw me about 12 feet through the air I actually landed on my feet but the impact was so strong I went straight back over onto my front turned it into a forward roll because some part of my brain was like no 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 head tarmac bad bad combination <laughs> and finally landed on my back completely winded um, and with scrapes on my spine and a severely jarred neck, which, you know, still troubles me now. But I was alive. And I, the thing was, I immediately thought, oh, my God, my back is broken. So I sprang to my feet, which apparently I was told by witnesses later was really fucking creepy. <laughs> um, basically sprang to my feet to prove that my back <laughs> wasn't broken. And then turned round and my bike was in two pieces on either side of the road. Um, so I would have been, I would have been fucking dead. This car had hit me at about seventy-eight miles an hour, and the woman had stopped the car oh and she got out of it. And she looked at me and she was like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." And I turned round and I swore a blue streak at her. <laughs> I really did. And then I weirdly, she burst into tears. And I found myself comforting her for hitting me with her car. <laughs> Because weirdly, because I'd had that strange, oh, I'd had that strange initial, you've got to get off the bike now or you're going to die moment. Um, I was in a better state and dealing with the whole situation better than she was. <laughs> anyway, I'll stop the story there. Obviously, everything ended up fine. And you can argue that some part of me heard a noise and pieced it together with something else. Um, that my brain just put all these different little tiny insignificant clues together that told me this and you know what you're probably right it doesn't matter because it was essentially a premonition it it was a case of don't know what's going on behind me but if I don't get off my bike now I'm going to die yeah 
Absolutely. That's a terrifying story, but also amazing. I've got a way scarier story than that. Way scarier. <laughs> I am going to have to get those out of you later. <laughs> anyway, the Amityville Horror. Now, <laughs> speaking of scary stories. Um, yeah, both 1979 and 2005, because why not tell it twice? <laughs> The story of Amityville is now infamous and obviously based on true events, but some spooky stuff happened around both the original film and the reboot. Yeah, the plot follows the Lutz family who in December 1975 moved to number 12 Ocean Avenue in Amityville. What followed was a hellish year of supernatural happenings. Now the film is based on the book written by Jane uh, sorry, Jay Anson, in conjunction with the Lutz. However, there are holes in the story and there has been a lot of dispute over the veracity of events, including several lawsuits. The house, however, does exist. And on November the 3rd, 1974, Ronald DeFeo Jr. shot and killed six members of his family in that house. Strange happenings include a pair of trousers falling off a hanger in an actor's room uh, before the 1979 version. Which, sorry, it's just... I feel like it's one I should of those things where if you were in the room... Yeah, if you were in the room and you saw that, you'd be like, oh my god! But if you then sort of tell everyone at the breakfast table, you know, the following morning, people would just be like, have you considered that you're just really shit at hanging clothes off? <laughs> yeah, I have to give some context for this. The The actor who was to take the lead role um, wasn't too sure about it, but he was reading the script in his hotel room and... I think it was his hotel. Anyway, he was reading the script in his room. He got to a very scary part and a pair of his trousers, like, randomly just fell off a hanger. And they startled him so much that he leapt to his feet in fright, at which point he knew he had to take the part, which to me still doesn't sound that scary. That's just kind of like, oh, wow, some clothes fell down. Clothes do that. I can understand that basically that something making you jump and you realising that you were so engrossed in the story that you you literally had become part of it and then going, yeah, this is it. This is now... I, I was so engrossed in this, I believed it, you know, kind of thing. I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, during the 2005 remake, a body washed up on the shore of the set location... <laughs> which is not something you particularly want. Also, Ryan Reynolds and the rest of the cast and crew kept waking up at 3.15am on the dot, which was when the original murders happened. Again, there's the possibility that something was happening uh, whereby they were being woken up by sound or something um, which... Uh, was being caused by someone trying to scare them. Um, it is also possible that, you know, you can sort of, you do have an internal body clock. It is possible that, you know, something along those lines um, was happening psychologically, or maybe there was something just a little bit spooky going on, but that's definitely something that would start to feel kind of eerie and not a coincidence if if lots of people are are having the same you know, experience at the same time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's just a case of they probably knew about the original murders and they probably knew that 315 was part of it. 
And I think when something like that sort of sinks into your subconscious, um, it can start to loom large in the background. So as you say, the internal body clock and sort of 3.15, bolt awake because there's danger, because it's yeah. there, it's in your subconscious. It kind of just makes sense. Um, I'm not, I mean, the body washing up on, on shore of the set is like not great, um, but the sea does have a no. lot of bodies in it. Yeah. Um, and not all of them are murder victims. It should, no. It's worth saying as well. So a uh, bit grisly, definitely I can understand being on set and that kind of really being very upsetting and strange. Um, but I, I would say that I'm, I'm not convinced that there's anything necessarily supernatural going on there. I think there's something very human going on. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, okay, uh, our last one is Annabelle and Annabelle Comes Home, uh, both uh, the 2014 film and the 2017. So this is another item from our Cursed Objects episode. Annabelle the Possessed Doll was originally a bog-standard Raggedy Ann doll, which had reportedly quite murderous tendencies. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I'm refusing to watch these films because anything to do with dolls inspires a sort of kill it with fire attitude, which is probably not beneficial to anyone yeah. around me. <laughs> um, but. I mean, I have to say that with this doll, the doll in these films, the way they've made it look, it, it's basically, it's not a Raggedy Ann doll, it's a wooden Victorian nightmare. And I genuinely, who looks at it and goes, yeah, I'm, that's cute, I'm going to take that home, it looks lonely. I mean, seriously, who does that? I know. Now, completely without surprise, uh, the dragons uh, will now be reporting on weird shit that began to happen on set because of course it did uh it was a film about a possessed doll <laughs> yeah objects would mysteriously move around on set strange loud knocking noises could be heard by the actors and at least one person saw dark figures reflected in a mirror standing in a doorway behind them who were not there when they turned around Definitely very eerie and unsettling. Yes. Um, again, I do think that, you know, <laughs> there's several we elements there, the but we'll is... talk about our thoughts in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the actual doll is actually currently being kept sealed in a glass case at a paranormal museum owned by paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren um, under the sign warning positively do not open honestly I think they should have just burned it yeah yeah although um, I'm pretty sure when so... someone when someone tried to burn it it caused a car accident so maybe not <laughs> Yeah. It's one of those things where, regardless of whether there is a demonic entity, regardless of whether the doll is supernatural, the reputation is now so big, the, 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 the folklore around it is so big that it kind of is going to become true, if that makes sense. You can't really escape yeah. it. Um, and I think that it's very understandable that people on the set of um, Annabelle would just feel very creeped out, not least because the doll was incredibly creepy. Yeah, 
Um, and it obviously it is possible that objects were moved by, you know, set hands, etc. Um, the whole sort of like they've seen things floating through the air and what have you. It's like, look, to be honest, a certain amount of, of genuine poltergeist activity has been pretty well documented. You can't just produce it mm. whenever you want, which makes it quite difficult to investigate. Um, but I, I, I'm not gonna. I don't think it's impossible. It, it's very noticeable that it happens a lot around teenage girls as well. That's fairly well documented. Hmm. Yeah, I have actually seen some interesting ideas where people talk about this this idea that actually. Uh, it's not poltergeist activity, it is a manifestation of something inherent within people, some kind of psychic sort of phenomena and power. Which if you're going to believe in the supernatural, you might as well consider, you know, other options of that. So rather than it being the dead, it's actually being literally manifested by people really believing in it. Uh, which is definitely an interesting concept. Or, you know, perhaps not even believing in it, but just having, for some reason... Um, look, okay, this is going to be very random, but you know during uh, female menstrual cycles, there comes a point when you yeah. are more electromagnetically charged than at other points in the month? <laughs> and when you... No, I, I, I shit you not, this is true, this is true. So if you find during certain parts of the month that you are more likely to get a static electric shock, that is why you're at that stage of your menstrual cycle, if you're female, um, whereby you are you are more electromagnetically charged. Now imagine that you are a teen girl who's just entering adolescent, which is the group where this seems to manifest it at the most, and your hormones are all over the shop, and for some reason this causes greater electromagnetic charges and you're blowing up like bulbs and shit it's it's wild it's out there it's fringe science and it's possible i'm not saying it's probable but <laughs> it's incredible. not impossible it's true no. it's fucking nuts but it's <laughs> it is actually a thing that is amazing <laughs> it's just i mean that's certain a bit parts of the month i find that Annabelle. small bits of yeah, I mean, it <laughs> probably explains why at certain times of the month I just find myself covered in iron filings. Uh, no, I'm, I'm joking. But, um, no, but you might be covered no, in I'd, fluff. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> at least once a month, covered so, yeah. in fluff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just find Annabelle in general very, very creepy. Yeah. Um, and it, it again it doesn't matter whether I believe in the supernatural or not it doesn't matter whether Annabelle is real or not because the myth is now real it's taken on a life of its own um, and that is a powerful amazing and terrifying thing yeah I completely agree and I always come with the caveat when it comes to dolls of yeah let's just destroy it to be on the safe side yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> Okay, so do okay. you have any well, favourite <laughs> any favourite behind <laughs> favourite spooky behind scenes stories? Uh, that's really hard uh, and uh, I'm not sure, I'm, I mean I, I feel like we've, we've covered some of the sort of, some of the stories that I found particularly interesting 
Um, I hesitate to call, call it favourites because some of them are just tragic and very, very sad, but there are certainly some that sort of definitely have given me chills and felt very, very spooky. Um, I, I'm always actually, rather than film sets, I'm very interested in ghost stories and experiences yeah. that you find in theatres as well. Uh, because actors just yeah. seem to attract yeah, this agreed. kind of thing. Um, one that didn't kind of make the cut for this episode is the story... Uh, there is a film called Winchester, and it's the story of the Winchester Mystery House, um, which it didn't really have stuff going on behind the scenes, or if mm-hmm. it did, they're playing it very close to the chest. Uh, but basically, the the story is that the, the heiress of the Winchester fortune... Um, she lost her husband and she lost her infant daughter and then she sort of became obsessed with sort of life and death and she saw a fortune teller and the fortune teller said uh, you must go to your husband's home the the Winchester farmhouse it was just a little six bedroom I say little it was a six bedroom farmhouse and the fortune teller basically told her that if she continued to build she wouldn't die um, and that house is massive now. It has more than 40 bedrooms and 40 staircases and weird sort of trick rooms where the ceiling's on the furniture and stuff. It was the inspiration for Stephen King's um, Rose Red adaptation. And it is just... There's something very creepy mm. about it. Um, even though, I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think... I mean, it's supposed to be haunted, but I don't think anyone's really come up with any real ghost stories or anything around it other than the fact that this woman this winchester woman was just got so sort of consumed by the idea of of not dying that she made this weird monstrosity of a building yeah 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 it is a very odd place yeah i guess it is a bit um, it's kind of like limbo. And, you know, the emotional burden of I've got to keep coming up with new things, new ways. To, I think mean, maybe it basically became a crafting hobby. It started off as as a sort of, I've got to keep myself alive and turned into a, no, this is what I do every Tuesday. I do more blueprints. <laughs> well, they do say, you know, yeah. keeping busy keep, makes you live longer. So uh, maybe it did work to a certain degree. This is also true. <laughs> Also, she, you know, she lives on in memory because of the house. So uh, <laughs> we're going to finish off there, but we would love to hear about more of the unsettling, creepy stories that perhaps you know of that happened uh, sort of on film sets um, and also in sort of locations or things like that. Um, we do like to hear about those. So please do share your stories with us. We'd be very interested. Now, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I think you've got a slightly unusual one for us this week. Yes, this isn't spooky at all. I mean, actually, thinking about it, there is kind of a ghost and a family curse in it, but it's actually, it's actually biography. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime Jules says, this isn't spooky, take that with a pinch of salt. She has a different measuring system. (laughs) Um, it's called Woman Captain Rebel and it's by Margaret Wilson I say it's by Margaret Wilson it's Margaret Wilson working with an Icelandic to English translator who has translated and fiction you know partially fictionalized but it's still pretty accurate to the original source material the diary of a 19th century uh, female sailor 
in Iceland. Um, female sailors and fishermen were not unusual in Iceland because it was a case of you needed every able-bodied person you could and your main sources were farming, um, which was very difficult there, and still is, I believe, and fishing, which was obviously very dangerous. Um, but this, this woman started off on her father's fishing boat when she was about 12 years old and she just seemed to really have a knack for it. And it's a really interesting story. She seems to have been, she was very definitely a woman and she sort of worked within the system of the times, but she flouted it where it suited her. And she had lots of ups and downs in her life. And, you know, Iceland at the time was, obviously the 19th century was pretty sexist generally, but it, Iceland was especially sexist because of the way it was set up and because of the way the religion had a hold over everything. And, she obviously dealt with an awful lot of hardships and things. Um, it's a fascinating look at 19th century Iceland and the, the reason why either you know, 19th century Victorian writers of the time were a bit dismissive of the Icelandic people, saying, you know, they're, they're little better than savages because, you know, they live together without getting married. Well, actually, you had to prove you could support yourself before you got married. Um, and if you lived in a home with a father and a mother, then technically you were one of their farmhands, one of their workers. Um, if your parents then died and your brother inherited the lease to the farm because you didn't probably own it yourself and he brought his wife in, you, you were little better than a servant to his wife. So if you wanted your own independence, mm. and you wanted not to be worked to the bone and not given enough to eat because your brother's wife it was up to her how much you got fed um then you you would move out and you try and get married yourself or you would and what the, this particular woman did was she she thought well you know if i marry them i'm stuck with them forever so she made it a condition that they lived together first without getting married to see how long see if they could get along and she did that with, with two potential husbands yeah. um, and did have a child by one of them. And this, you know, this wasn't actually unusual for Iceland because it was incredibly expensive to get married. <laughs> you had to prove you were wealthy enough to hold a lease for a farm as well as work on a fishing boat, etc. She just had this really extraordinary life yeah. and she was absolutely dauntless. It's such a fascinating story and it's really well told. Um, without losing any of the Icelandic flavour or culture, it, it's very accessible to an English audience. So I highly recommend it. It's a great biography. Hmm. That's really interesting. I'm definitely going to have to check that out. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah. Thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. 